Welcome to After All Art School's podcast. After All Art School is a multimedia platform for collective reflection on the present and potential futures of teaching and learning about and through art. The current crisis for art schools around the world has major implications not only for the labor and practice of teaching and learning in the field of art, but also for the labor and practice of art making itself. Encompassing essay series, live open discussion groups, and a reference hub for further reading, watching, and listening, Art School engages with the present's most urgent questions around education and art. We are your hosts and co-editors, Camille Critchlow and Ariana Mercado. This podcast series was created in collaboration with the Kunstfeld and Hamburg's exhibition, The Educational Web, which ran between April 1st to August 6th, 2023. This exhibition took the theorist, educator, and decolonial thinker Ivan Iklik's seminal 1971 book, Deschooling Society, as a point of departure, generating dialogue between art and the pedagogic practices that underpin it. The educational web brought together the work of eight schools, educational organizations, and independent study programs, which define themselves as alternatives to the traditional art academy. Over the course of the exhibition, we at After All Art School initiated a series of online interviews and a growing library physically present at the Kunstverein. We collectively think through three different strands, education as learning together, problematizing the decolonial institution, and studying in the shadows. Our first episode is with Rinaldo Walcott. Enjoy this recording. Um, so without further ado, I'm very pleased to welcome Rinaldo Walcott for a conversation this evening. Ronaldo is professor and chair of Africana and American Studies at the University at Buffalo. He is a writer and critic. His research is in the area of Black diaspora cultural studies, gender and sexuality studies with interests in nations, nationalisms, multiculturalism, policy, and education broadly defined. As an interdisciplinary Black Studies scholar, Walcott has published in a wide range of venues on everything from literature to film to theater to music to policy. His two most recent books published in 2021 include The Long Emancipation, Moving Towards Freedom, and On Property, Policing, Prisons, and the Call for Abolition. He also recently curated an exhibition at the TPW Gallery in Toronto entitled Black Sight, featuring the works of Black Canadian artists, Karina Griffith, Abdi Osman, Raquel Rowe, and Wayne Salmon, which I hope we can discuss a little bit later in the conversation. Um, and my name is Camille Critchlow. I am project coordinator at After All Research Center at Central St. Martins and a PhD student based at the Sarah Parker Remen Center for the study of racism and racialization at University College London. Um, so Ronaldo, let's just jump right in. Um, I wanted to begin this conversation on theme with our topic this evening, um, just orienting ourselves within your educational history and interest. Um, so you're an interdisciplinary scholar, um, as I just said, across several fields, Black studies, gender studies, education, cultural studies, um, and you've written about everything from pedagogy to the visual politics of, of sagging pants and Black masculinities. Um, so could you just talk a bit about your educational anchoring, um, whether this is inside or outside the academy or the institution, um, and what has kind of led you to your role as an educator who thinks about, about visual cultures and art practice? First of all, Camille, thank you and After Hall Research Center for inviting me into this conversation. Um, it's, it's a wonderful um, opportunity to kind of talk about 
uh, a sense of intellectual development and how that um, shapes the kinds of things that one pursues um, that both give joy and pleasure, but that also disturb and, and demand that we somehow wrestle with them. I mean, I come to thinking about questions of visuality and pedagogy um, in as a kind of urgent response to the dire conditions that shape Black life. And, and but I would say that it really began to make sense for me or codify itself into an intellectual and political project when I went to graduate school. And um, in graduate school, the very first courses that I took with was with uh, um, the late Roger Simon, who um, was a scholar of pedagogy, but also a scholar of museums and museum practice and the pedagogy of museum exhibitions. So the very first course I took in graduate school was with Roger Simon and, and Henry Giroux, who many people would know as a scholar of pedagogy, a scholar of cultural studies, a scholar who has consistently and persistently intervened into um, the role that schools and higher education play in shaping the sociality of our lives. So that's when it really codified for me. But, but the inkling and the further foundation of it actually happened when I was an undergraduate at York University. And um, I happened to be an undergraduate at the time where some of the most significant debates around moving from what was then called Commonwealth literature to post-colonial literature were happening. Also happened to be um, an undergraduate at the time when there was a renewed, um, a renewed set of debates within Black studies um, around questions of Afrocentrism, Black postmodernity, and so on. Mm -hmm. When I was undergraduate, I was keen to be interested in those debates, but I didn't realize how they were shaping me. When I went to graduate school, I realized how they shaped me. And one of the things that um, became really powerful for me in graduate school was when I got to sustainly and deeply engage with the work of Stuart Hall, which then took me to the work of a wide range of British scholars, including the work of Paul Gilroy and the work of Hazel Carby and others. And that then took me into Black British visuality, um, the work of Black Audio Collective, the work of Isaac Julian, um, the work of Sonia Boyce and so on. And it, it was true, the encounters, and I didn't only read those works for the kind of aesthetic qualities, but for the pedagogical quality. And by that, what I meant was that the pedagogical quality was teaching me something about blackness beyond the nation state. And so it was in, in the kind of cut and mix of black audio's work um, that these kind of questions of um, how art pedagogically and aesthetically moves you into new ways of experiencing and making sense of the world, that, that this relationship between art and pedagogy got cemented for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really rich place to begin. Um, I wanted to talk a little, a little bit about your kind of recent publications um, and the way that you kind of conceive of these ideas of abolition and emancipation and freedom from the perspective of 
education and also thinking about um, black creative cultures. Um, but just for our audience who might not be familiar with the kind of terms that you use um, in these books, um, could you talk a little bit about the terms of emancipation and freedom that you define in the long emancipation? Um, how can black freedom be defined against the concept of emancipation? And what are the kind of critical distinctions between these terms that you're thinking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing that I just said around coming to a kind of pedagogy of visuality through um, the work, and I just gave a slice of, you know, Roger Simon, Henry Giroux, Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, and a range of artists. The long emancipation is, is a distillation of years of thinking about both the inventive creativities of Black cultures and the manner in which those cultures are continually um, curtailed, bound, forced into various forms of captivity, but how it is that something that I would call Black life keeps also exceeding that curtailment and those boundaries of captivity. And while I've, I've been thinking about those kinds of questions for a long time, and then of course, the tragic events of um, the vigilante murder of Trayvon Martin happened, and we see a renewed um, public black protest going under the lives of black, going under the moniker of Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black Lives. And I wanted to think about, you know, the kind of question of what conditions the possibilities for black freedom. And that's when I started to think about, you know, <clears throat> enslavement. I started to think about enslavement and emancipation from enslavement which many people use interchangeably with freedom, that the slaves were freed or the slaves freed themselves. And, and I want to think about emancipation as its legislative and juridical form, which is what happened, that you know, slavery, transatlantic slavery and plantation slavery ended through legislative acts, true acts of the judiciary, and particularly true acts of the judiciary of the colonizers and the enslavers. And so that got me thinking very much about the terms of what it means um, to be released from captivity. And, and of course, we know that the empirical, the empirical evidence of that release from captivity tells us that many, many Black people walked away from the plantations where they had been enslaved, whether that's in the in the British Caribbean, whether that was in the US after the end of the Civil War, whether it was in Brazil, Portugal, sorry, Brazil, Cuba, and so on. Wherever people were enslaved, as soon as they were, they were released from that captivity, they fled those plantations. And of course that led to, um, that led to the practice of indentureship. But what that also helped me to understand and to see that even as they fled the plantations post-emancipation, that what emancipation did was it set up a regime, it set up a structure so that emancipation immediately was greeted with laws against fragrancy, 
laws against how people could move, when they could move, where they could move, and so on. Therefore, trapping people within the time of emancipation, which in my view is to trap them within the time of armed freedom. So that emancipation then in this conception does not equal freedom. That the possibility of what could have been freedom was again curtailed because as people walked off the plantations, they might have authored new kinds of lives, new ways of being together, new modes of what it meant to live a life. Um, but because of the, the added legislative and judicial practices that came to greet emancipation, they became trapped in the time of emancipation. And that's what I mean then in my book when I call it the long emancipation, that we've been trapped in the time of emancipation for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And what that means then is that we're not able to articulate and build what freedom might actually mean. Because in my conception, freedom is not juridical, it is not legislative, but it does have something to do with the autonomy of the body, it had something to do with being not subject to forms of violence. And it profoundly had something to do with black people being able to move, to freely move. So in, in my work, there's a tension and a juxtaposition between emancipation and freedom. And what holds those two things together and intention is the question of abolition. Mm -hmm. I see abolition as like really fundamentally central to the possibility of freedom. And I see abolition as really the project of black struggle. And of course our struggle is not over. So abolition is not over. And so in the, in, in the On Property book, one of the things that I try to argue or suggest is that at various moments in time, the struggle for abolition and therefore freedom um, it's interrupted, there are settlements. So for instance, you know, in the post-colonial Caribbean after independence, there's a kind of settlement and abolition does not appear to be at the forefront of what people are doing, but as structural adjustment interrupts lives and people become more impoverished, it returns. And similarly in the context of the US and elsewhere around the world, after one can say that after say 1975, there's a bit of a settlement, you know, a kind of end to the civil rights movement and black power, there's a bit of a settlement. But then by the eighties, the election of Ronald Reagan, um, the intensification of policing in black communities, the crack epidemic and, and its devastation of black lives and so on, that a renewed, a renewed discourse for abolition reemerges. And of course, um, to go back to 2013, 2014, that was yet another eruption and one that I think we're still playing out with. So abolition is the thing that holds the tension between this time of emancipation that I think we're still trapped in and the possibility of freedom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to think about 
the educational institution in this tension between freedom and abolition. Um, as you've kind of written about um, the limitations of a lot of educational multicultural policies um, and their role in kind of extending the juridical and le legislative logics of emancipation, particularly within the university context, but also in other educational apparatuses. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how um, educational apparatuses have the potential to delimit or prohibit um, the realization of, of Black freedom and how this particularly plays out in the context of the university, but perhaps there are other places where this also happens. Yeah, I mean, I think that the that education is a really interesting battlefield in thinking through these questions. You know, um, Black people are always engaged in forms of exercise and knowledge making that exceed any kind of institutional frame. We see this in Black dance, in Black music, individual arts, and so on. Excuse me, my allergies are hitting. <laughs> wow. So we, we, we see that Black creativity and inventiveness in all of these, um, let's call them vernacular spheres of Black life. But within the context of schooling and universities and the academy and other kind of pedagogical institutions, we see both the, the play and the gesture to Black inventiveness and creativity, and also the attempt to contain it and discipline it. So for instance, we know that in 69, when Black Studies enters the US Academy, the Black Studies enters the US Academy as a subversive force, as a force that is meant, if you will, to in some ways um, overturn the Academy and give it back to itself in a fashion that it would not recognize itself. And that is very much in concert with the cultural studies movement in the UK um, in the 60s as well, where the cultural studies movement meant to overturn um, the production of knowledge in the university and give the university back to itself in a way that was unrecognizable. In both cases, both of these insurgent forms of knowledge and the practice of knowledge and a, and a full understanding that knowledge inhabits and resides within the political are undermined through disciplinarity. They're undermined through um, a demand by the institution to begin to look like the other disciplines, what we call the traditional disciplines, anthropology, sociology, English, and so on. And by doing that, the practitioners of uh, Black studies, cultural studies, find themselves um, embedded in the university, seeking the meager, meager um, resources of the university, having to conform to the university so that they can be recognized and so on, and thereby, um, the, the, the political project, <clears throat> it's, it, it's at the least dulled, if not in some cases, totally killed. And where individual programs or practices are able to maintain some sense of the insurgent quality, over the years, they are gotten rid of, <laughs> they are disposed of. And what emerges is the multicultural form of this of the project. Um, the multicultural form of the project keeps in place the underlying 
white supremacist structure of the university and it keeps in place the underlying white supremacist logic that Europe and Euro-America are the foundation of the knowledge forms that are the most useful and the most meaningful for how we build any kind of sociality, um, for how we think about what it means to be a citizen, for how we think about what it means to be human and so on. So that what happens is that even though these insurgent forms of knowledge can reside in the university, um, they only become, they are positioned as representative of the university's democratic largesse. Um, but, but what part of what is happening is that the university itself is limiting um, the possibility of the transformational knowledges that these insurgent forms bring to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in a similar vein, the kind of language of decolonization has also um, been claimed by universities and, and museums alike. Um, so I'm kind of wondering how does how does the language of decolonization um, fit into this systematic kind of reprogramming of of white white supremacist institutions, um, and is there a way to reclaim decolonization um, as a kind of pathway to black freedom? Um, and what is is the relationship between black freedom and decolonization? Yeah, decolonization is. The idea of decolonization and the word in the term itself is one of those words that I actually think we have to fight over and struggle over and not let it become totally usurped by, by the neoliberal university. So I'm very much um, one of these people who is always appalled by what I see being done under the premises of under the premises and the claims of decolonization within the context of the university and, and other major institutions that organize our social lives. And why is this? I think that part of when I, when I talk about the long emancipation um, and I talk about the curtailment of freedom, part of what I'm getting at is that had those former slaves been able to produce and practice their own, their own understanding of what freedom meant, that we would be living in a radically reconfigured world. And so, you know, I come to the question of decolonization through the work of Fanon, and particularly the wretched of the earth. And of course, Fanon dies a fairly young man still developing um, his ideas around decolonization. But I think there's much that we can still learn from, from the wretched of the earth that then we can take the chance or the risk to even go a little bit further, which I'll do in a second. So I think Fanon tells us a number of things or teaches us a number of things that are really important for thinking about decolonization. One, he tells us that it will involve violence, that it's not going to be easy, he also, tell, he also tells us that, um, and he's using the frame of the national, but I don't think it only holds for the national. He also tells us that the national elites, many of whom are trained in places that you and I study in and work in <laughs> universities, and particularly the colonizers' universities, will seek to steal the revolution, will seek to 
still the possibility or the move towards decolonization. So he alerts us to the fact that <clears throat> even as we, <clears throat> sorry about that. So he alerts us to the fact that even as we find ourselves in the political transformational moment, that those among us who many of whom we will see as our, for lack of a better word, allies, as our comrades in arms, will undermine the revolution for all kinds of complicated reasons, because of their education, because of other kinds of class loyalties and so on. So he's relentless in asking us to, in some ways, take leadership from those who are not among the elites. And so when we think about what Fanon lays out for us, he lays out for us a process of decolonization that is a set of phases. And a set of phases that some includes violence, includes forms of retribution, involves a kind of the revolution falling back in on itself, involves moments of settlement, but that all the time we're pushing towards something that we need to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so for me, often what I see, for instance, things like multiculturalism doing, or moments like what we now call EDI, diversity, inclusion, equity doing is, that there are phases that fall back on themselves because of potential eruption. Eruption that might lead to deeper forms of transformation. And what happens is that these, these moments come to interrupt the potential revolution. And they provide momentarily temporal forms of settlement. So we get a black president or we get black university chancellors and provosts and so on. And these are supposed to represent um, some moment of transformation, but in fact, what they're doing is they're undermining the revolution or the potential revolution. And this is why we can't allow these moments to be called decolonization because we need this term decolonization. We need the ideas of decolonization as a part of the fundamental struggle to produce, to end this world that we're in and to produce the possibility and the foundations for another and a different kind of world where the life forms of all of us might become more possible. Mm. So I believe we have to struggle over the meaning of decolonization. I think we also have to understand that decolonization is not a single event, but it's a set of phases that fall back in and on each other. So it's not linear also, it's not a linear process. Um, it will emerge over time. It will have many interruptions, but it will all, but each of those interruptions happen because this transformation happening. Mm. I mean, in, in the spirit of those deeper forms of transformation, um, I'm wondering what the role of education plays in this kind of realization of revolution. Um, I mean, you've talked about um, Black freedoms, um, radical reordering, rethinking, and remaking of human experience, that it will have to kind of shake up everything. Um, and I'm wondering how educational frameworks 
fit within this relearning of, of a different way of being human. Well, you know, one of the things about educational institutions is that they are deeply involved in the business of curtailment. You know, I, I, think I write about sagging pants, um, but one could, one could use baseball caps, sagging pants, you think about, you know, educational institutions that ban sagging pants, that ba ban how black kids might wear um, the baseball cap. These are small forms of creativity and invention that educational institutions have to, have to ban. And in the long emancipation, I talk about these as glimpses of freedom, that the wing which black people fashion themselves and their bodies otherwise offer us glimpses of freedom. And when those glimpses are outside of the potential to be made into capital, to be capitalized, they become, they're seen as deviant and they become subject to the state's laws and legislation and so on to prohibit them. And similarly, I think there's a similar kind of dynamic, an analogous dynamic with the question of ideas and knowledge within the context of the university. That even in a moment, in the post-George Floyd moment where so many universities moved to, at least in the Canadian context, the established Black Studies programs, elsewhere in the US, in some parts of the US to reinvest in Black Studies programs, elsewhere, like in the UK, some emergence of, of these programs as well, and certificates and, and, and so on. What we, what we see is that all of this is done to manage the potential of black, full, full black uprising, that these are forms of interruption. But they also, as I said earlier, begin then to plot the ground for how we get discipline inside the university. The minute that we enter the university, one of the things that we start to do, you know, um, anecdotally is to look around and to see, okay, so does my Black Studies program look like the philosophy, philosophy department? Does it have the same resources and so on and so forth? And that in and of itself becomes a disciplinary mechanism. So if all of our time is spent trying to see if we look like the others, which is a legitimate claim because you want the one wants access to resources, but it also means then the one is now built into the horizon of the institution itself. And so one is not seeing oneself beyond the horizon of the institution. And so, so struggle becomes curtailed, struggle becomes interrupted. And so educational institutions in their contemporary form are as significant as prisons and jails are. They all share an underpinning carceral logic that is meant to corral people into reproducing whatever is articulated as the norm at this historical moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd like to stay with this idea of these glimpses of freedom that you talk about, because I think mm -hmm. that's really important for thinking about um, Black art practice and some of the projects that you've been involved in recently. 
Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this power of Black creativity that you kind of write about in The Long Emancipation and elsewhere. You know, how does Black creativity specifically, you know, be it through art practice or music or self-fashioning, um, provide glimpses um, into Black freedom? Um, and are there any kind of artists or designers or musicians that come to mind um, as pertinent examples for thinking about these glimpses? Yeah, I mean, these glimpses that I like to think of, that are, they're both the everyday and the vernacular. So we've talked about sagging pants, baseball caps, the, 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 the magical creative things that Black women do with their hair, <laughs> um, you know, <clears throat> the wing which Black, you know, black, the things Black women do with their nails. <laughs> you know, one can go on and on and one can build like a catalog of the ways in which Black people take the ordinary and the everyday and, and take these things that are supposed to have one meaning and give them another meaning, and thereby not only being creative, but being inventive. And part of my argument is, to repeat myself a little bit, is that the things that are inventive out of Black life, like for instance, hip hop. Hip hop could be capitalized. So it moved from being deviant to being capital and being shared by everyone. Mm -hmm. The things that can't be capitalized, like, you know, there's no real market for sagging pants, even though fashion designers, you know, can now design pants that look like if they naturally sag and so on. But there's no real market for the attitude that sagging, sagging pants inhabits. But, so therefore, the young black men who sag their pants are criminalized, made deviant, and so on. So the mediating figure here is the question of whether or not the capitalist market can usurp the practice, can usurp the invention, or whether or not, or whether or not it can. If it can usurp it, it does. If it can't, it makes it deviant and criminalized. And so, so this question of inventiveness is for me at the vernacular level, it's at the everyday level of Black life. But then we see it in what Black artists do, right? Whether we're talking about, you know, the monumental multi-screen works of Isaac Julian and Joanna Comfra, um, whether we're talking about the wing, which, you know, the, the, the monumental sculptures of Simone League, or we're talking about, um, you know, the way in which Black documentary photographers do their work. Um, we're thinking about, you know, the, the manner in which um, Black artists intervene into cinema, um, into music. Um, like, there's just a wide range of ways in which um, Black inventiveness takes the common understanding and a common set of practices and turn them on their head, turn them inside out, and thereby offer us a different account of what it means to live a life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you recently curated an exhibition at the TPW Gallery in Toronto, um, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, and in your curatorial statement, you mentioned kind of moving beyond the lenses of identity and representation and belonging um, when it comes to thinking about Black art. 
Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about um, your curator curatorial approach in relation to these kind of glimpses of Black freedom um, and the conversations around Black art making that you and the artists um, kind of had whilst you were putting together this exhibition. Yeah, I mean, that show and particularly the, the, the artist statement is really written very specifically to the Canadian scene yeah. where I think that um, Black art is, at least in the last few years, has often been exhibited within a very narrow lens, <clears throat> a lens of representation, a lens of whether or not Black people belong to the nation, and a lens of kind of this kind of an example of, of diversity or equity or inclusion. And therefore, what has, what has happened is that there has been a suspension of talking about the aesthetic qualities of the work, the traditions that the artists are working in, and what might be the other kinds of concerns that the artists have in mind when they're making their work. That's why I call the show Black Sight. I wanted to get at what are the other kinds of moments that these artists are citing in their work. So for instance, um, Karina Griffith's work in, in that show, um, We Call This Love, is her engagement with um, a film made by an African filmmaker who studied in Berlin in the 60s and the 70s and is of the generation and all of a sudden their names just went right out of my head, um, but it's of the generation of the great German filmmakers. Um, gosh, it'll come back to me. But Karina had difficulty getting access to this film and um and the archives themselves literally refused her access to the film mm -hmm. but she was able to get a bootleg of the film so she doesn't screen the film but what she did was she made flip books of the film and in these flip books she inserts herself. So mm. she inserts herself in a conversation um, and in a way to disrupt the archive. Mm. And so, you know, she is in this work referencing questions of gender, questions of a lost archive, um, what it what it what it means to be restricted by entering the, from entering the archive and so on. Similarly, Wayne Salman, who's in the show, you know, um, who works with a photographer who works with film and, 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 and the darkroom practices, you know, and Wayne's work has a, a blue tone to it. Um, and part of the, the blueness of that tone is that he's interested in black people as blues people. He's mm -hmm. interested in, in so the, the question of music then, structured into his photography you know that's just one example of a range of things that he cites in his work mm -hmm. or abdi osman whose work is it's collage work and the particular pieces in the collage work are in conversation with rutini fanny quixote so if rutini fanny quixote um news um his relationship to yoruba culture and religion as a kind of citation in his work, 
Osman uses Islam as a citation in his work, but these are two queer, queer African photographers um, in conversation, one from the West, one from the East, um, or Raquel Rowe, whose work um, is engaged in a deep resonance with the sea, influenced by the writing of, of Paul Gilroy, um, and trying to think about you know, rituals of the sea, and so also citing um, everyday vernacular Barbadian culture of taking a sea bath. Mm. So what happens is that when these works get positioned through Canadian multicultural logics, we don't get to get, we don't get that other stuff. What mm. we get is a kind of thin, a thin articulation of representation that never allows us to get, if you will, underneath the skin of what they're actually trying to get us to engage with, the kind of thick, dense texture, the accumulation of experiences and ideas that build their work. And that's what Black Sight wanted to get at and is trying to get at. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it seems like you're kind of positioning citational practice as a kind of technology which resists or refuses the logics that kind of reproduce the, the conditions of the long emancipation in a way. Um, I don't know, I feel like there's this kind of intersection between citation and education as well, which, which is kind of um, fitting to our conversation. Um, and I'm wondering whether you see these um, subversive citational practices um, extending beyond kind of artistic practice, you know, how can we embed citational practice, um, you know, either within our educational institutions or, you know, in our, in our daily lives as a kind of lived, um, yeah, a lived practice. But you just nailed it. Because <laughs> that's exactly, <laughs> you just nailed it. Which is to say, listen, the university as a site thinks of itself as the home of citation. Mm -hmm. But actually what the university is, the, the university is a place of recitation, right? It's a place of repeated recitation. Those of us who are willing to recite over and over again, the normative structure of the university are the most rewarded, mm -hmm. right? Those of us who cite and move on, who cite and build, who cite and extend, who cite and push against are breaking out of that time of emancipation. And therefore we come up against all of the forces that seek to curtail it. There's a reason why there's a part of black scholarship that is so fundamentally concerned with the recovery of lost figures, mm -hmm. because those figures push against something that was considered the norm and the norm made them disappear. Now, sometimes that same work can be hagiographic in all kinds of weird ways, but I'm offering as an example to say that the university, which is the place that likes to talk about citation, that likes to say citation is important. It's actually really indebted to recitation. And recitation, as you know, from any kind of childhood um, nursery rhyme, Recitation is not particularly inventive. <laughs> it's not particularly, um, it's not particularly pushing against 
um, it, it shows that you're able to reproduce as you were told in, in some ways. And so the long emancipation is exactly that. What does it mean to try to break out of this time? And, 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 and part of my argument is that when we see black people breaking out of the time of emancipation, that violence happens to them, right? And this violence is something then that black people are forced to live with. The violence is as intimate a part, violence and death is as intimate a part of black living as anything else. And because it is such an intimate part of black living, the other thing that is so central to black living is the impulse to invent. That we kind of constantly are in the mode of invention because invention becomes a way to escape the deadly logics that continually seek to recapture us day in and day out. And, you know, so the educational institution is one of those because the educational institution and the pedagogy of educational institution, if we were not constantly pushing against them, would produce us as self-hating subjects. Like all of the kinds of knowledges that are meant to kill Black people day in and day out are actually produced in the university. So when I say that the university is as dangerous as the police in the patrol car, as the judge that you might end up in front of in a court of law, I am actually, I'm not exaggerating. And, and I take seriously um, Sylvia Winter's essay, A Letter to My Colleagues, in which she actually makes this case um, in the moment of the terrible beating of Rodney King. When she says, she says that she writes that black people and particularly black men are narratively condemned. And she's writing to her colleagues and she's saying, but where do these people learn this stuff from? The, where did the police officer who's beaten the black man and saying that there is no human involved learn this from? They arrive in our classrooms. They arrive in the classrooms of the university, the community college, the high school, the elementary school. So the university for me, if I go back to now what I understand is my undergraduate education and into my graduate education, what I learned most firmly is that the university is a battlefield. That knowledge is a part of the war of position that what it means to me is actually a significant part of the struggle. And that pedagogy and knowledge making is essential to any potential talk of moving towards freedom. Mm, I think that leads very well into my, into my final question, um, which is kind of just med meditating on, you know, if we can take away from these glimpses of black creativity, if there is a way to kind of import these glimpses of black creativity into our educational models. Um, so I guess my question is, is black creativity teachable? Um, and how might the ethos of black creativity be embedded in educational models or is this even possible? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think the creativity part might be teachable and might be, might exist with the potential to um, act as 
forms of transferable knowledge. What I don't think is teachable, because I think one has to inhabit the subjecthood of blackness, is the inventiveness. And so from so 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 I I, I say kind of inventive creativities because it's the attitude that, as my mom used to say, that you can make you can make something out of nothing. <laughs> you know? Uh, it's that attitude of inventiveness is in particularly what becomes at stake. And it's that it's that quality of inventiveness that resists capital and capitalization that makes black life so dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I think that what flows from that inventiveness, sometimes there's a kind of product that might flow from that inventiveness, a, a set of practices that might flow from that inventiveness. And I think, hey, hey uh, <clears throat> is the best example of it, but that can be that can be cannibalized and inserted into all kinds of models. Mm -hmm. But what can't be is the attitude that made it possible. And mm -hmm. it is in fact this kind of intangible the intangibles, the intangibles that point towards not not that I never say that will make freedom, but are pointing towards freedom. Mm -hmm. Because I think freedom gets made in various kinds of moments. And that is not like a destination that we arrive at. But the things that point towards freedom are the most dangerous things, um, are the things that are seen by Eurocentrism and white supremacy as the most dangerous things. And it's that quality of black invention, that ability to take a risk, that ability to say, oh, I'm going to wear my pants backwards, even though everyone says the pants are supposed to be worn with the zipper to the front, but my zipper is going to be at the back. And what does that tell you? You know, that tells you about a different way, a different orientation, a different way of making sense of the world that one inhabits. And mm -hmm. it's that different way, that different orientation, you know, um, that becomes dangerous. I think of um, Kamal Brathwaite's notion of tight electics in this way. You know, he, he, he said, you know, the dialectic is fine. I understand the dialectic, but I also need something that references the environment that I inhabit, but also has the same meaning. And so he comes up with this term, the tight, tight electic. You know, he's looking at the, at the waves on the Caribbean Sea. He's watching how the wave brings something new in, it shapes the sand in a different way each time, but it brings something new, it takes something out and it remakes. And he fashions this term as a way of also then returning or implanting the formerly enslaved into a landscape that was not initially theirs, mm -hmm. um, thereby offering some possibility of home and homeland. And it's that kind of inventiveness that I am after. Thank you so much. I think that's a really good place to pause and end. Ronaldo, thank you so, so much for engaging with me today um, and for your contribution to our conversation series. Um, your words have given, given me a lot to think about. Um, and yeah, this, this has been a really rich and deep conversation. So thank you very much. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. After All Art School is co-edited by Camille Critchlow and Ariana Mercado. 
This project was held in collaboration with the exhibition The Educational Web at the Kunstverein Hamburg. Our music is Space Jazz by Kevin McLeod or Incompetech.com. Keep up with our programs at afterall.org or through Instagram at, at afterallresearch.